Those you guys can come down. Chelsea and Clancy will be up here. So uh, through your olds, through kindergarten, you guys come down here and meet them. Thanks, Mike and the team. It's been a joy and a pleasure to get to be a part of this gospel weekend. Um, as Joe said, we do go back, uh, and it's, it's been fun to watch how God in his just goodness has taken us in all these crazy directions and in some way united our hearts for what it looks like to do student ministry. Um, I am from the Denison area as... Joe already told you, I'm at a church called Legacy Bible Church. I have been there about to celebrate six years, and I do students, college, and missions at the church. So I didn't expect you to get all three of those right. So uh, I just do things at the church. That's a better way to put it. Um, but yeah, uh, I at the beginning of the weekend, I talked about three passions that I have, just to kind of give the students a little glimpse of who I am, and I think that's probably the best way for you to get a glimpse of who I am. And so I talked about three passions, the first being my family. And I have been married just under 10 years to Annalisa, and I love Annalisa. Uh, she is uh, truly um, a great stabilizer for me. Um, I tend to be a what's next person, and so I am constantly going, and she likes to be a homebody, and so those two things together just make a perfect union. So um, uh, we have three kids. We have Abigail, who is seven. And we have Eli, who is four, and then we have Lily, who is two. And I told the students this, but we really thought we wanted four, and then Lily came along. And so three, we're done. Uh, it's over. So, uh, but anyways, I love my kids. In fact, last night, right before the basketball tournament, which thank goodness it got me out of the basketball tournament, because after dodgeball and volleyball, there's going to be no sideways motion this morning. It's just going to be straight motion here. So, um, but I, uh, I got a call from my son and he's at that age and uh, he just misses dad. And so we got to sit on the phone for 25 minutes and I got to sing to him and talk to him. And, and, uh, and so I just love my kids. In fact, these weekends are really hard for me as much as I love them because I get to do something I'm passionate about. I have to leave another passion at home. Um, and so that's really difficult. So I'm looking forward to when my kids get old enough, we can just all go together. You know, that's going to be a lot of fun. So you wouldn't want Lily here, trust me. Um, so secondly, my passion is for gospel-centered student ministry. Um, and what I mean by that is over the course of the last 12 years, I have truly seen students come to know Jesus. And in knowing Jesus, I have watched their desires change and what they live out change. And it has drastically impacted the circles in which God has strategically placed them in for a very specific purpose in a very specific time. And it has come out of a motivation of not fear-based compliance, not out of morality, not out of simply being really good students, but out of a place of worship, out of a place of joy, out of a place of a motivation that says, this is what Jesus has done for me. And because of that, because I have this right view of God, which then therefore affects my view of self, I can properly love others because I know what it means to be loved. And I've seen that and I've watched that. And it just keeps me hungry for more. 
And I'll come behind Mike and say, you have a student pastor here who cares deeply about the same thing. And I've challenged the students to go dig into that because ultimately he is leading you to life. He is leading you to something that will truly change your life forever. And when I say forever, I mean forever. And thirdly, I am passionate about the, God, the Word of God. Um, I love to teach it. I love to read it. I love to meditate on it. I love to just pull it apart, and I just love it. And I love it because it's where life is found. If I want to know who God is, like I want to rightfully know who He is, not because of the actions in which I think I see him doing around me or I'm hoping he's doing around me. Therefore, that means those things are true. But if I really want to see who he is and his character, I look to the word of God. And it begins to shape my view of him, which ultimately, again, begins to shape how he sees me, which then how I see myself. And then ultimately, the mission, because of the great command, makes sense now. Without the word of God, it doesn't. It's me trying to navigate life the best way possible with a God that I truly don't even know. And yet the word of God reveals God to us. He reveals himself to us. So much so that this word becomes flesh and he reveals himself to us over and over and over again. And so with that being said, one of the things that I have done at the beginning I do with our students on Wednesday nights is we're going to stand and read the word of God together. So we're in Luke chapter 15. And we're actually going to read all the way through the chapter this morning because this morning, as we close out this series, we are going to look at the other two parables before the parable of the prodigal son. So if you'll stand with me, Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, we'll start in verse 1. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man... He receives sinners and he eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he had found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need repentance, who need no repentance. Or what, what about a woman having 10 silver coins? If she loses one coin, does, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger? 
I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him and put the ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants over and asked, what were these things meant? And he said, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. Thank you that it, even when read, points us to you. It exposes our hearts. It points us to our great need for a Savior. And so, Father, this morning, God, would we see your Son so clearly that our hearts would be drawn and attracted to a God who for all of eternity has loved because he is love. God, would you do what only you can do in our hearts this morning, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. Well, we have, though this weekend has been called Limitless Love, um, I have been walking through the series called Prodigal God. And If you really want to dig more, there's a book by Tim Keller called Prodigal God. And if you read it, especially students, you're going to go, wow, that seems like it was the weekend. Well, because that was pretty much the weekend. Uh, It was a fantastic book. It shaped both Joe and I in significant ways. And so when Joe asked me to come out and do it, I was thrilled to death to be able to open God's Word and walk through this idea of prodigal God. And so this word prodigal, meaning recklessly extravagant or having spent everything, oftentimes we see this in the son. That's why it's called the prodigal son story. right? We see this son, this younger brother, who gets all of his inheritance, and he runs off and he completely and utterly just disposes of it all and wastes it all and spends it all seeking happiness. 
But ultimately what we see in this parable is we see a God who in his limitless love is sparing no expense to reveal that love to us. And as Jesus shares this story, he is ultimately the main goal being and the way that you know that he does is because I'm sitting right here. And he's ultimately, as he always does, exposing hearts and revealing himself. And so we, in review, uh, we have broken down this story. And I can't really jump to the end without reviewing because the end is like the like, climax of the whole story. And so just in like a snapshot of the weekend, Jesus is sitting with tax collectors and sinners. And he's eating with them. And these Pharisees and these scribes, these teachers of the law, are kind of over on the side. And you can almost picture that they're just kind of grumbling a little bit. And it's not like they're in the circle, but they're kind of outside the circle looking on and going, God, can you believe that? I mean, look at him. Does he know what Jack did with Susie last weekend? Like, does he know the addictions that John has? I cannot believe that he's over there with with these, these sinners. They're filthy. And Jesus, in these two crowds that are represented here, is ultimately speaking, yes, to the tax collectors and sinners, but he's wanting to get the attention of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And so he tells a series of parables. And we specifically talked about the third parable this weekend in detail, this parable of the prodigal son. And within this parable or this story where characters didn't actually exist and the story didn't actually happen, but using this story to illustrate the people who he's talking to that actually do exist, there are individuals or characters that parallel real characters. You had a father and two sons, a man who had two sons. And this father parallels our heavenly father. And this younger son parallels the tax collectors and sinners because ultimately what we find is he goes to his father and he makes a request he says listen you're dead to me like I really have never wanted you I really just want your stuff and so here's the deal if you can just act like you're dead and just give me my inheritance which understanding in this patriarchal society that you don't make that request if you make that request you're out you're out of the family you're not in you're no longer my son get out of here, is the right response from the father. But this son comes to him and says, you're, you're, you're dead to me. I just want my stuff. And he's saying, I want my inheritance, which isn't supposed to happen until after the father's dead. And so here's how inheritance would work. The older son would get two-thirds of everything the father had. And understanding it's not like going to the bank and writing a check. Because your money was found in your land, your property, your servants. All of that brings you a prestige in the community. It brings you respect in the community. And you have worked generation upon generation upon generation to accrue this wealth and this respect. And so the older son, after the father's death, would get two-thirds. All the younger sons would take a third and divide it equally among themselves. And so when the younger son comes to him and says, give me what is mine, give me my inheritance, he's ultimately saying, I want you to rip your life apart. I want you to rip everything that you have fought your entire life and generations before to accrue. I want you to rip that apart. Literally, this property, this life, this bios, that he would tear his own life apart so the son could have what he thinks is rightfully his. And so the father, not responding as a normal father during this time would, tears his life apart and divides his property 
and gives the younger son his share. And the younger son, paralleling the tax collectors and sinners, similarly goes off and just spends it all in reckless living. His life begins to fall apart. He devours it on prostitutes, alcohol. He's on this quest for happiness that ultimately he's going to find falls lacking. And so he goes and spends it all. And he finds himself, at the end of himself, being hired out to work for a pig farmer. And he's sitting there feeding the pigs. And as he sees the slop being put into this barrel, he looks at it and goes, man, that looks pretty good. And I told the students, I've never been to that place. But it gives you a great picture of a quest for happiness, of self-discovery, where it will ultimately end. Because it doesn't satisfy. It's never going to be enough. We can use all the, 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 the things of this world, the created world, to achieve happiness. And we will ultimately find exactly what the younger brother found. That it just will not work. It's a recipe for disaster. And so he comes to the end of himself, and he comes up with this idea. Okay, I got it. Okay. I know that I've done something wrong, so I'm going to go to the Father, and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against you in heaven. Check mark one. Check mark two. I can't be a son anymore. I'll never deserve that again. I'm not worthy of that because of what I've done to my father, what I've done to his respect in the community, what I've done to our family. Check number two. Number three is I will work it off. I'll become one of his hired servants. Okay, got it, sweet. So he heads home. And what we see is how the father responds to this wayward sinner, the tax collectors and sinners that Jesus is sitting with. As he sees him coming a long way off, it's almost as if the father had been sitting on the porch night after night after night. Honey, he's coming home. I just know he's coming home. He's got his sweet tea, Duke the dog, petting Duke the dog, just waiting, just waiting for the sun to come home. And finally, the sun comes over the mountain, over the hill, and he hikes it up once again. Don't do this in this society as the patriarch of the family. He goes running. You have things brought to you. You don't go do things. But he hikes it up, and he goes and runs, and he embraces, and he kisses the son. Now, you have to imagine in this moment that this son who has this speech well-planned, ready to, 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 to work off the wrong that he has done, and he gets embraced with this free gift of forgiveness and grace and love by his father. In fact, so much so, he's so just shocked. You just got to imagine the father's kind of picked him up. Ah, oh, it's my son. He's just kissing him. He's just thrilled that his son is home. And the son starts his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and you, and I don't deserve to be your son. And before he can even finish, the father's calling servants. Bring the robe. Bring the ring. We're putting him back in the family. Bring shoes. Wash this guy's feet off. There's pig poop all over it. Wash his feet off. Put sandals on him. Bring the fatted calf, the calf that is supposed to be used for the most celebrated moments in a family's uh, existence for the father. You don't kill a fatted calf just to kill the fatted calf because it's a weekend barbecue. You, feel the, you kill the fatted calf because something significant enough has happened that you're willing to throw away that much money to celebrate it. And he saw this as one of those moments. My son is home. He was once dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. Let's celebrate. Invite the whole town. We're going to celebrate that my son is home. 
unmerited, unearned grace. And Jesus is pointing to the love of his Father, whom he has enjoyed for all of eternity, that the Father would describe his own Son as, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And he wants these tax collectors and sinners to see that's the embrace of the Father. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. But you don't understand what I've done, Nick. It doesn't matter. Because I know what Jesus has done. And because of what Jesus has done, the embrace of the Father is possible. But then Jesus goes on to another brother. And it tends to be the one we don't talk about as much. Because in all honesty, it's probably the more difficult one to deal with. Because though the younger son or the tax collector and sinners are very public in their rebellion against God, the elder brother is somewhat deceiving in his rebellion against God. And he tells the story of the elder brother when he hears of this celebration and this party going on for the younger son. He's angry. And he refuses to go into the party. He won't do it. And so the father comes out to entreat him. Come, come into the party. You're my son. Like, come celebrate. Your brother is home. And he ultimately looks at his father and says, look, look here. And I want you to begin to see the parallels between the younger son's rebellion, only wanting the father's stuff, not really the father, and the elder son's rebellion, only really wanting the father's stuff and not the father. I have worked these many years. I have followed every command. And you have not even brought out the weekend meal of the young goat for me to celebrate with my friends. And you killed a fatted calf for your son who has devoured it all with prostitutes? Of course I'm not going to go in. And we have to begin asking ourselves, why is he so angry? What's really going on? Well, what's really going on is no different than what was going on with the younger brother. He's mad because now his stuff has been touched. His plan has been thwarted. His life goal of achieving self-rightness has been messed with. See, ultimately, in order for the younger son to come back into the family, you know what has to happen? Somebody's got to pay for that. Because now he gets an inheritance again. And so who's going to pay for that? Well, it's going to be the elder son. His inheritance, the fatted calf, the money that's supposed to be rightfully his, now gets trickled back out to this younger son. And he begins to lose something in the process that he has worked for all his life. And what we begin to see is a heart of self-righteousness. You should have consulted me. That's my stuff. You don't get to just give it away. And we begin to see his heart, just as we see the Pharisees and we see the teachers of the law looking on on this meal that Jesus is having going, I cannot believe that he would eat with sinners and tax collectors. And the elder brother's going, I can't believe that the father would let the younger son back in the family. I can't believe that. Does he know what he did with the money? And so what we begin to see is we begin to see Jesus is redefining lostness. He's redefining that there's two ways in which an individual can be lost. The first way that an individual can be lost is by this understanding that your self-worth has completely gone out the door, 
that you're at the end of yourself, you've tried it all, nothing has worked, you have no family, no friends, no money, no resources, you've had a complete and utter life collapse. And some of us in this room have experienced that moment in which we truly believed that we do not, because of what we have done, believe that grace can be given. In other words, we minimize the power of the gospel over sin, over our actions, as there's no way that he could ever love me that way. And there's a posture of, look look what I've done. And you would look at me and say, as I said earlier, Nick, you don't know what I've done. And I would say, yeah, but I know what Jesus has done. And you would wrestle with that. You would struggle with that because you would truly believe that what Jesus has done is not greater than what you have done. But see, there's another form of lostness that is kind of an undercurrent of lostness. And it's this lostness of self-righteousness. That we would be our own saviors. That out of following all the commands, we would declare ourselves as right. Not because of the finished work of the Son of God, but because of the finished work of ourselves and what we have accomplished See, our lostness as an individual who might struggle with self-righteousness would say, I don't think I need the gospel. In other words, the posture would be, look what I've done. And so we see these two forms of lostness. One, look what I've done. And the other, look what I've done. And Jesus is equally defining each of these individuals as just as lost as the other. And so what we did last night is we began to break down the elder brother a little bit, this self-righteousness. And this is important because it's going to get to the end of the story and tie to the other two parables that Jesus tells. And it's going to be the entire point of the entire whole section of Luke chapter 15 that Jesus is trying to make. And so what we discovered is in self-righteousness, there's four characteristics that we tend to see. The first is we tend to see angry. Uh, We we tend to see anger, excuse me. That this elder brother, as it says, when he found out that the younger son's been brought back into the family, it says, but he was angry. In other words, life didn't go the way the elder brother wanted. Therefore, he became angry and bitter. See, because elder brothers believe that if they live a good life, then they should get a good life. We kind of mask it in this phrase, if I do good things, God will bless me. But this is a heart of self-righteousness, that your works would get you something good. Trace that all the way down into the gospel, that my good works get me Jesus. They get me heaven. See, it's a posture of, I hate thee, When something goes wrong. In other words, our first response is the fist towards the heaven. I can't believe this. I deserve better. The characteristic of anger comes with self-righteousness. Secondly, the characteristic of superiority. When he looks at his father and says, this son of yours. In other words, the younger brother is no longer his brother. Why? Because of the younger brother's actions. The elder brother will always point out... Grab this. How much better his own moral record is than that of the wayward sinner? Well, at least I haven't done fill in the blank. I told the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple who've come to repent. 
and the tax collector is over there repenting, and the religious leader, the Pharisee, is repenting, and he literally, in his prayer, looks over there and says, I'm so glad I'm not that guy. And that's the superiority that we see within an elder brother. And this competitive comparison works its way out in every area of our life. Self-image, how we see ourselves versus how we see somebody else. We'll look at somebody else and go, I feel a lot better about myself because of that. Because of that person and how they look. Our identity, who we are, we don't find who we are in the Father. We find who we are in that we aren't that person. This works itself out in racism, classism, others who have different religious beliefs. We will look upon these individuals and go, I'm better than them because I'm this color. I have this much money. I have a better belief system. Even all the way down to petty things like I can throw a football better than them. See, the self-righteous elder brother is defined by superiority. And within that comes an unforgiving and judgmental spirit towards anybody, towards anybody who would make you feel better about yourself because of where they find themselves. Thirdly, the elder brother is defined not only by anger or superiority, but by slavishness. Look at what happens. All these years I've been what? Slaving for you. Slave literally means forced or pushed rather than drawn or attracted. That I'm simply doing these things because I feel like I have to do them to get good things from you, not because I love you and want to do them for you because you've drawn me and attracted me to who you are. Another sign of the elder brother is joyless, fear-based compliance. I don't do this because I love the Father. I do this because I have to in order to get the love from the Father. The elder brother shows that his obedience to his father is nothing but duty all the way down. And then finally, the elder brother is defined and maybe the most sad by emptiness. Look at what the elder brother says. You never threw me a party. I mean, in this moment, the heart of the elder brother is so exposed that we can't miss this. He is literally saying, you never did anything good for me. Like the elder brother completely misses the father's love. Utterly misses it. You never threw me a party. He is completely empty. The last sign of the elder brother is a lack of assurance of the father's love. Goodness, mercy, forgiveness. As long as you're trying to earn your salvation by controlling God through your goodness, you will never be sure that you've been good enough for him. You will never truly rest in him. You simply aren't ever sure that God loves and delights in you. And then we asked a few questions. How do you know? How do you know that these four characteristics might be defining you as an elder brother? And I gave these quick four bullet points this morning. We went into depth of them. But life goes wrong or prayers unanswered. And you first ask this question. Am I living good enough? Could I live better and get a better life? 
Number two, criticism from others doesn't just hurt your feelings. It devastates you. Because remember, ultimately, you're finding your approval in others. And what others think of you. Not in how God sees you. Thirdly, you will feel irresolvable guilt when you do something you know is wrong. You can repent, you can walk through all the right steps, but ultimately you will never rest in the finished work of Jesus because you don't think, you don't think that you need the finished work of Jesus. And then finally, your prayer life is totally and utterly about you. There's no celebration, there's no gratitude, there's no thanks, there's no worship, because it's fear-based compliance. So then we find ourselves to this morning. There's two questions we have to ask to close this out. First, what do we need? And secondly, maybe more importantly, who do we need? The first thing we need, and we see it in both the younger brother and older brother, is God's initiating love. Don't miss that. It's not simply that his love is limitless, but it is initiating. In other words, the father comes and embraces the younger son. He does not wait for his younger son on the porch, tapping his foot, murmuring, I cannot believe my son did this. If he comes over that hill, oh yeah, he's going to get it. But rather, he sits there eagerly waiting to embrace, to come to, to initiate the love to his son. It's not the repentance that causes the father's love. Okay, grab this. It's not you, and he's just waiting, going, please just come to the front so that I can love you. Like, respond to my message so that I can love you. In fact, it's the opposite. It's his initiating love that brings you to a place of repentance. He does the work from beginning to end. But the father also goes out to the elder son. Remember, he leaves the party. He leaves the 99 to go to the one. He leaves the bag of coins to go find the lost coin. He does not wait for his older son to get over himself. Well, at some point, he'll get over himself, and he'll see just how good I am, and I'll just wait for it, and it'll happen, and then then he'll finally get to experience my love. Rather, he goes out to him, and he entreats him, and he says, look, I'm your father. You're my son. All that I have is yours. Come into the party. Put down your pride and come into the party. The elder brother gets not a harsh condemnation, but a loving plea to turn from his anger and self-righteousness. Listen, we need the initiating love of God. And you and I do not initiate anything. He draws us and he attracts us. Listen, we will never find God unless he first seeks us. Ever. If you begin to sense, and I want you to grab this, students, listen, grab this. If you begin to sense your lostness and find yourself wanting to escape it, you should realize that that desire is not something you could have generated on your own, but rather it is God's initiating love drawing you to himself. Adults, 
If you begin to sense your lostness as a younger brother or an elder brother and find yourself wanting to escape that, you should realize that that desire is not something that you could have generated on your own. We will never find God unless he first seeks us. And that will lead us to true repentance. Not fake repentance, not self-righteous repentance, but true repentance. Repentance must go deeper. And Jesus is trying to tell this to the tax collectors and sinners and to the Pharisees and scribes. Repentance must go deeper than just the regret for individual sins. See, because the younger brother had this long list of sins, but the elder brother thought he had no list of sins. And so it can't just be about repenting about the list of sins. It's got to go deeper than that. See, we've got to go to the pride in which we do those deeds. Why? What's the motivation? Rather than just the remorse over bad deeds, we've, we've got to begin to ask the question, why are we doing the good deeds? Why are we doing the bad deeds? We've got to get to the root issue, which is a heart that doesn't really want God. It's a heart that wants God's stuff. We must learn to repent of the sin under all the sins and under our righteousness, the sin of seeking ultimately to be our own Savior and our own Lord. But then you have to close with this question. How is that possible? How does that happen? Well, then we have to ask, who do we need? Remember the two parables that came before, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin? You remember what happens in those two parables? The first is the parable of the lost sheep. This shepherd has 100 sheep and one goes missing and he leaves the 99 behind to go find the one. Ultimately, he leaves to go and find the one. He finds the one sheep and he celebrates with everybody. Look, the sheep has been found. Let's rejoice. Let's celebrate together. The woman loses one coin and she leaves all the other coins behind and frantically searches her house to find. She goes and finds and searches diligently for that one coin. She finds it and she celebrates. But what about the parable of the prodigal son? See, in the first two parables, someone goes out and searches diligently for that which is lost. And so when we get to the third story, what are we expecting of? We're expectant to see the same in the story of the prodigal son. But we don't. Nobody goes and looks for the younger brother. Nobody goes and searches diligently to bring him home. And so the question that we should ask is who should have gone out and searched for the son? Whose role was that? Well, there's a story at the beginning of Genesis that helps us out, and Jesus knew this full well. When Cain kills Abel and God comes to Cain and he asks him, where's your brother? And he declares to him, you're your brother's keeper. See, ultimately, this is what the elder brother in the parable should have done. This is what a true elder brother would have done. Father, my younger brother has been a fool, 
and now his life is in ruins. But I will look for him and bring him home. And if the inheritance is gone, as I expect, I'll bring him back into the family at, listen, my own expense. The phrase, my son, everything I have is yours by the Father, is literally true. The elder brother had everything he possibly needed to be a true elder brother. Go search diligently for his younger brother. Bring his younger home at whatever expense to himself. To not truly even lose anything, but to gain everything. And so we have to ask this question. Who atones? Who pays? For the restoration of the younger brother. Because ultimately somebody always pays for forgiveness. Always. Let me give you a few examples. If someone breaks your lamp, knocks it off, there's two responses you can have. First, you can go to them and say, you pay for it. Expense paid. They pay for it. You got a new lamp. All good. Secondly, you could forgive them and pay for it yourself. You could say, don't worry about it. It's not a problem. I'll buy a new lamp. But guess what? Somebody had to buy a new lamp. Somebody had to pay for the broken lamp. This is how forgiveness works. What about this? If someone damaged your reputation, you either, one, make them pay for it and damage their reputation. The cost is theirs to bear. Or number two, you forgive them and in setting the record straight with no expectations in return. But ultimately, guess what? Your reputation Still damaged. Somebody still had to pay for the damaged reputation. And it's you. See, mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it, then that's not mercy. But forgiveness is free and unconditional to the perpetrator. But listen, it is costly to you. And see, in Act 1, we get this beautiful picture of how free the Father's forgiveness is. But in Act 2, with the elder brother, we realize just how costly the Father's forgiveness is. The Father reinstated the younger brother back into the family at great expense to one person, the elder brother. Except the elder brother in the story is not willing to pay any cost to seek and save that which is lost. Therefore, we are left at the end of the story that abruptly ends wanting a true and better elder brother. The fulfillment of the first two stories is not fulfilled in the third story. And then Jesus, in just his greatness as he's exposed hearts, just kind of walks away and says, the end. And as the younger sons, the tax collectors and sinners, and the elder sons, the Pharisees and scribes, are listening to him, and they are looking directly in the eyes of the true and better elder brother. See, we have Jesus. We have a true elder brother. As younger brothers in this room or elder brothers in this room, we have rebelled against the Father, either in our own self-discovery for quest of happiness or own self-rightness in our quest for happiness. We have rebelled against the Father. We deserve only alienation, isolation, and rejection. And therefore, the point of the parable that Jesus is really trying to make is that forgiveness always involves a price. Someone always has to pay. There was no way for the younger brother to return to the family unless the older brother bore the cost himself. 
And our true elder brother paid our debt willingly on the cross in our place. He was stripped of his robe of dignity so we could be clothed with a dignity and a standing that we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus was treated as an outcast so that we could be brought back into God's family freely, only by grace. Then Jesus drank the cup of eternal justice so that we might have the cup of the Father's eternal joy. There was no way for the Heavenly Father, listen, there was no way at all, wasn't going to happen, for us to be brought back in except at the expense of our true and elder brother. So here's the question that we close with. How can the inner workings of our heart be changed from a dynamic of fear and anger to that of love, joy, and gratitude. And listen, this is, you've got to grab this. Like this is essential to understanding the gospel. The only way that's going to happen is we have to be moved by the sight of what it cost to bring us home. Like, don't miss this. As I told the students last night, eternity is at stake. Not eternity from a place, but eternity to a person. A relationship for all of eternity. That's what's at stake with this question. Do you, are you truly moved by the sight of which it cost to bring you back to the Father? Do you think it's great enough to overcome your worst sin? Do you believe that you actually need it or are you your own savior? Because neither one of those postures gets you the Father. Neither one of those postures give you eternity in a relationship with the Father. Rather, the posture of going, I have a true and elder brother who at great expense to himself emptied himself and became obedient even unto death on a cross for me. And that would attract you and draw you to the limitless eternal love of the Father. And that's where salvation lies. Selfless love destroys the mistrust in our hearts towards God that makes us either younger brothers or elder brothers. Ultimately, that's what it is. It's a mistrust. John Newton, in one of his hymns, said it this way, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. The choice before us seems to be either turn from God and pursue the desires of our hearts like the younger brother, or repress the desire to to do our moral duty like the elder brother. But the sacrificial, costly love of Jesus changes both of those. When we see the beauty of what he has done for us, it attracts our hearts to him. It does not cause us to go, we've got to do more. It causes us to go, it's all already been done. What can I do for the one who loved me in such a way that he would empty himself and die for me? Another poet, William Cowper, said it this way, to see the law by Christ fulfilled And hear his pardoning voice changes, listen, a slave into a child and duty into choice.
The goodness of the gospel is that our hearts are drawn to him when we see just how much he loved us. We will never stop being younger brothers or elder brothers until we acknowledge our need. Rest by faith and gaze. Gaze in wonder and awe of our true and elder brother, Jesus Christ. I want to end with this story. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band up. If you've never heard it, it's a story that grabbed me in the midst of really wrestling with my own self-righteousness. And it's the story of how Charles Spurgeon came to faith. So I just want to read it, and I'll let this kind of be what we end with. Because I think it's a great picture of this affection and this drawing. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dearest friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. Now looking, don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot on your finger or your finger. It's just, well, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Ah, said he. In broad Essex, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some say we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up the text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look, look, look unto me. Look unto me. 
When we had gone to about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew me with all his heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made to me from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey me now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it at all. I was so possessed with that one single thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. And when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instance and sung with the most enthusiastic of them. Oh, of that precious blood of Christ. And the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ. Trust Christ. Trust Christ. And ye shall be saved. And so, Father, this morning... that we might see Jesus. That we might see the finished work of your son, that we would look and that you and your goodness would cause us to see. Father, would you, whether we are a younger brother looking for happiness in the world or we are an elder brother looking for happiness in ourselves, would you so graciously crumble those walls, expose our hearts to see the finished work of Jesus? We pray in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.